This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go behind the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Shazana Mukhtar. There have been dramatic developments in Sri Lanka over the past few months as the country faces an unprecedented economic crisis, culminating in massive public uprisings that finally forced the resignation of Gotabaya Rajapaksa as president last week. For a better understanding of the situation on the ground, joining me today is Faraz Shokatali, editor of the online news portal The Ceylon Independent. Thanks for speaking with me today, Faraz. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, for months, the Sri Lankan people have been calling for Gotabaya Rajapaksa to step down as president of Sri Lanka. What was the public reaction to news that he had officially resigned after fleeing to Singapore? Uh, Well, I think in the first part, uh, there was some uh, uh, real relief that uh, uh, this person who appeared to have stuck his head in the sand uh, had actually gone because he was known as a very stubborn uh, person coming from a military background uh, and so on that you know he was used to getting his own way anyway there was this tangible relief that he's gone uh, but um, unfortunately uh, the people are still not uh, shall we say satisfied uh, and their their displeasure hasn't been satiated at all uh, in the sense that although he's gone uh, they are now kind of stuck with a prime minister uh, whose credentials are not exactly uh, 100% either. I understand that the Prime Minister Ranil Vikramasinghe has been sworn in as the acting president um, and that Parliament will be voting to determine a successor as president in the coming days. Maybe you can walk me through the process in appointing um, who that successor will be and, and whether there are any obvious contenders. The, uh, the process is uh, constitutionally driven. When the uh, president uh, resigns, for whatever reason, uh, the person who is prime minister uh, then becomes the acting president for a maximum period of 30 days. Inside that 30 days, the uh, uh, parliament uh, must be convened. Uh, the speaker can convene the parliament and uh, they, they must choose from within their members. That means within the 225 uh, they must choose somebody uh, to be the president for the balance of the outgoing president's term. That uh, can be a simple majority of the numbers polled. At the moment, we have four people who have put their names forward. Uh, and one of them is, of course, the acting president, Mr. Vikramasinghe. Uh, there's another one, uh, Mr. Dala Salaperuma, who's uh, representing uh, basically the political party that is popularly known as the Rajapaksa Party, the SLPP. And then we have uh, two other contenders. One is uh, Mr. Anur Kumar de Sanayaka, uh, you know, who's from the Marxist, uh, the JVP party. And of course, there's Mr. Sajid Premadasa, uh, the leader of the current opposition and the leader of the SJB. In terms of overall, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, the least contentious person, would be, without a doubt, would be Mr. Premadasa. This is the opposition leader, is that right? That's right, yes. Uh, Mr. Premadasa is also from a dynastic political entity, if you like, uh, because his father, Rana Singh Premadasa, a very, very successful uh, political figure in Sri Lanka. Uh, and so this is his son, Sajid Premadasa, who, who appears onto the scene 
with no sort of uh, a contentious background in terms of corruption. And the reason I'm, I'm focusing on for corruption is because the, the protesters, uh, what we call the Aragalea, they have made corruption one of their big, big ticket items. Uh, they, did, they wanted the Rajapaksas out because there was a perception that the Rajapaksa family were corrupt. So that's why they wanted them out. And of course, the other thing is that Sri Lanka's economy is completely and utterly mismanaged. How are Sri Lankans making sense of what's happening to the economy right now? What is the day-to-day situation on the ground? I suppose, you know, they look at the region and they look at Bangladesh, for example. And Bangladesh has actually managed to uh, increase its foreign reserves post-pandemic. Whereas Sri Lanka has gone completely the other way. We've gone into this abyss of uh, of bankruptcy in the sense that we've defaulted for the first time ever on our sovereign debt, Uh, so international lenders are not getting paid. Uh, And even though they're not getting paid, we don't have uh, enough foreign exchange to purchase the main ticket items like petrol, diesel, uh, cooking gas. And so uh, Sri Lanka's economy is measured in endless queues, um, and uh, people are spending more and more time. Uh, my, My own vehicle has been in a uh, in a queue for the last three days. Uh, it's just parked in the queue. It's queue's not moving. Uh, the queue there, by the way, is about three kilometers long. Um, so uh, the people's frustration um, needs to be uh, solved. At least the queues need to be uh, out of the way. And uh, I'm not entirely sure that the public mood uh, understands that just because you change uh, the president and you have a new prime minister perhaps, uh, that these things will kick in overnight. Uh, However, having said that, there is also a general belief that Sri Lanka's uh, international image, along with in in terms of, uh, you know, its relationship with the international community and other democratic uh, loving uh, nations, has been seriously dented in the past. And uh, there, is, there has always been a uh, confidence deficit in terms of the Rajapaksa administration, especially fueled during the uh, COVID-19 uh, lockdown times, uh, when, uh, for some strange reason, uh, President Gotabe's government uh, insisted that the Muslim community cremate their bodies uh, of their COVID dead. Uh, in spite of the fact that there was no credible evidence to say that uh, cremating uh, COVID uh, victims was the best way forward. And uh, there was deep unhappiness amongst the uh, Muslim community. And of course, that uh, overall picture was that Muslim countries uh, were aghast. And of course, they, uh, there was a real feeling that uh, because of previous exper- experiences of the Muslim community, in Sri Lanka, that uh, this was being uh, communally driven and that, uh, you know, the the Rajapaksa administration was uh, very communal-minded. 
So I have read that the tenure of the Rajapaksa family was marked by significant, like you said, communal politics in, in that sense. But I recall back to 2019 when Gotabaya Rajapaksa himself was elected as president with an overwhelming majority. So he obviously had a lot of support at that time. It's quite jarring now to see how much he has fallen out of favour. What accounted for his popularity back then? Back then, we, we had uh, a succession of security issues. Uh, first of all, we had the Easter bombing attack. Over 200, I think 255 people lost their lives, and at least more than 500 people uh, were injured, uh, some very seriously. So that, that affected Sri Lanka terribly. And that concern was uh, uh, overplayed by the Rajapaksa party, uh, who, of course, pointed to the previous time, uh, back in 2009, when the other Rajapaksa, Mahinda Rajapaksa, led the country, uh, along with Gota, who was then the uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, to a, a crushing of the uh, terrorist problem in the north and the northeast. So the so-called terror war was won in 2009. So they, they, they played this security issue. And then, of course, we then had the COVID-19. And uh, there is where the, uh, the problem really started, uh, because Sri Lanka's finances were so fragile and so very reliant on two matters, really. And the first of all, of course, was the remittances from far, of our Sri Lankan nationals working abroad. It used to bring in $7 billion uh, on average a year. That went down to about $3.5 billion. Um, and the tourism, which is about $5 billion, uh, just the bottom fell out of tourism. We didn't have any tourism at all. Uh, and then coupled with the, uh, the rising transport charges of, uh, you know, containers going abroad and so on. So our exports like tea and so on was hit. And then President Rajpaksa also announced an overnight move to uh, an organic farming country. So he banned overnight the use of uh, chemical fertilizers. That was completely disastrous, and it affected the, the, the sort of uh, farming community big time, knowing, of course, that Sri Lanka is uh, an agriculture-based economy. When he came in in 2018, uh, he also announced a tax break uh, and reduced taxes. He reduced the uh, VAT rate and so on uh, to give corporates a so-called boost. But soon afterwards, when, when COVID kicked in, he made no attempt to reverse that tax break, meaning that Sri Lanka lost a lot of revenue. All these matters, it was almost like waiting to happen. And it was like Sri Lanka, you're headed towards an abyss of bankruptcy. The Minister Gotabi Rajapaksa really had his work cut out. Mm, and he did not uh, rise to the occasion, evidently. Absolutely not. I'm speaking to Faris Shaukatali, editor of the online news portal Ceylon Independent. We'll discuss the media landscape in Sri Lanka after the break. BFM. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar and with me today is Faraz Shaukatali, editor of the news portal Ceylon Independent. Faraz, earlier we were talking about um, public reactions to the resignation of the uh, of Gotabaya Rajapaksa. And, and you did say that you weren't sure the public could accept that 
resolving the crisis or getting out of the crisis that Sri Lanka is in at the moment, it's, it's going to take some time. How coherent is the protest movement in Sri Lanka at the moment? Is there a clear figurehead uh, or a group that broadly represents the protesters? Is there any coherence uh, to, to their movement? Uh, unfortunately not. There is no sort of real clear leader. It started off very simply with uh, a group of people, about six or seven of them, uh, put together by uh, a very quiet uh, young man, Angelo de Silva, who uh, who just stood on a corner uh, with candles uh, and made a silent protest. And it grew all over the country. The farmers, too, were, were aghast at their lack of uh, fertilizer. But th- there is no clear leadership as such. Uh, people complain, and they, it's a complaint uh, that is very valid even today as we look for a new new president and a prime minister and a new cabinet. And that is this, that no single party appears to have, no, not appears, no single party has a documented policy of a plan on how to resolve our economy. There's a lot of talk, there's a lot of waffle. People now on the street, they realize that Sri Lanka doesn't have a plan. So this is also what struck me, the fact that there seems to be a very big disconnect between what the public wants politicians to do and what the political elite are actually doing. So I'm wondering in the appointment of this uh, next president, how will the members of parliament vote? Will they be taking into account what the public wants or will this be done um, with political interests in mind, which could see parties related to the Rajapaksa family still uh, have control of government? And that is, uh, you hit the nail right on the head. That is the problem. The Rajapaksa party uh, have the majority in the House. The leader of the opposition, Mr. Premadasa, has under 50 seats in a 225-seat uh, parliament. And uh, it would be remarkable if uh, members of the majority party, the SLPP, the Rajapaksa-owned party, it would be absolutely remarkable if those people, and this is a secret ballot, by the way, it would be absolutely remarkable if those people suddenly uh, found that uh, they had spines uh, that were more reminiscent of human beings and not jellyfish, that they would then act with a conscience and uh, act towards the people's movement. Uh, after all, they must remember that in a republican uh, nature of our constitution, the people are supreme, and it is the people who put them there in the first place. And uh, to be truly representative of the people would be if Parliament truly voted with a conscience and, and, and uh, elected a leader who is untainted. And I want to switch our view to the state of the media industry in Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka has a rather dismal record when it comes to media freedom. I think the latest Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index put Sri Lanka at 146 out of 180 countries. So with that context in mind, how challenging has it been for journalists to cover the current crisis over the past few months? It has been quite challenging. We found that the protesting public uh, very quickly cottoned on as to which of the channels are uh, doing its uh, you know, balanced job uh, and reporting the news as to sort of ignoring what is happening out on the streets. And uh, there has been a backlash against, uh, against networks uh, from the public against whom they perceive as not covering it properly. Uh, one of the uh, channels that uh, I also work with 
uh, news first. Uh, we've been carrying the protest live and, uh, you know, right from day one. You know, this network that I also work for, they uh, have never shied away from reporting uh, the news and presenting it as it is, and as the way we see it. Uh, we are, of course, privately owned. Uh, we're part of a large conglomerate. Yet, we, we too have been uh, subject to six of my uh, my friends in the industry were were attacked, uh, and whilst the security forces sort of looked on, they were actually attacked by the security forces, uh, which made it even worse. And this happened whilst uh, the the news was going live. And now, of course, there is this backlash from parts of the government trying to say that this network was uh, uh, responsible, uh, and that's completely rubbish because uh, we have timelines. We have recordings, and we have the uh, the necessary proof, if you like, of uh, our coverage, of our independent stance. The, the real big picture is that the media is the favorite target of uh, corrupt politicians and corrupt officials. The, I always say that the thanks the media gets for its work, and, and therefore perhaps uh, ironically its success, can be made by the amount of letters of demand and attempts to sue and attempts to shut you up. Uh, I think that's a good measure of, uh, of uh, the success of any uh, media station in Sri Lanka. Whether it's uh, able to create waves and create discomfort among the political elite and government, that shows that it's doing its job. That's right. Absolutely. Can I ask, how have the decades of Rajapaksa governance, whether under Gotabaya or his brother Mahinda, how have they impacted the Sri Lankan media industry? You know, in terms of... Uh, I guess, what kind of rules or what kind of laws or what kind of actions have they taken against the media industry that maybe has left it less vibrant or less open than one would like to see? The, the, the issue is this, that uh, the previous government, um, uh, which replaced Mahinda Rajapaksa's presidency, they brought in things like the right to information and, and so on. But uh, the problem is that uh, it was uh, not implemented properly. It was in its infancy, you can say. But uh, uh, more than anything else, I think it is the fear uh, factor, the fear psychosis that the Rajapaksa administrations came with uh, because you had to look at uh, what happened in the previous admin when so many journalists, including uh, the editor of the Sunday leader, uh, Lasanta Vikramatunga, was uh, killed. And uh, sadly, 13 years later, We've not had any resolution to that. Uh, and so it was the fierce psychosis that uh, led to sort of greater uh, self-censorship, if you like. Uh, and, but in, I must say that in, uh, once these protests started and so on, uh, you found uh, the rest of the media uh, also jumping in and being more open. Um, in a little bit of time that we have, Faraz, can I just ask your thoughts on how you think the situation in Sri Lanka has been portrayed um, by international media? It's been a constant news story for the past few months. Do you think that the what's happening in Sri Lanka is being portrayed accurately by the foreign press? Are there any nuances that you think might have been missed in international reporting? Uh, no, I think by, by and large, the international press have uh, reported fairly. And so... Uh, uh, we have to be grateful about that. But, uh, you know, I'd like to say at the end, I hope that the international humanitarian agencies will not forget the people of Sri Lanka, 
because the problem is not only in Colombo. The problem actually is out there uh, amongst the ordinary people of Sri Lanka uh, who, are, who are far removed from politics and uh, their survival. We, we have a food crisis looming in the next, it's on our doorstep now. So within the next two months, uh, that too will kick in. And uh, at the same time, our foreign exchange reserves are virtually non-existent. So uh, this is a wake-up call for the international humanitarian agencies to look at Sri Lanka very closely beyond the politics of the country. Faraz, thank you very much for sharing with us your insights and we hope to catch up with you uh, later down the line uh, in hopes that Sri Lanka will be in a much better position. Thank you again for speaking with me today. Thank you very much indeed for having me. I've been speaking to Faraz Shokatali, editor of the online news portal Ceylon Independent. This has been Pressing Matters on The Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. news bulletin followed by Enterprise. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.